been a while since I have been able to say this, but we actually have a home sales report that did better than the street was expecting. I don't know how long it's been since I've been able to say that, but we can say it here on the Thursday edition of Markets and Mortgages. I am your host, as always, Tyler Crawley, and we are talking and we are starting with pending home sales. And I got to say, going into this report, I wasn't too optimistic. I mean, we've seen a lot of reports. We had you know, new home sales earlier this week was down 12.6%. Pretty much every housing report over the last probably two months has been worse than expected and then some. <laughs> and so I was not optimistic going into this report. And man, I was surprised. So let's get into the numbers. The pending home sales index fell 1%. That's it. I feel like we should have like a celebration. It only fell 1% to 89.8 in July. Now, this is the eighth time in the last nine months that this report has shown a decline month over month. And of course, it is substantial that we are somewhat below 100 because 100 is equal to the housing market in 2001, which was relatively normal. I mean, 2001, we were in somewhat of a recession, but the housing market was somewhat normal, which it's been a while since we've been able to say that about the housing market. Uh, transactions year over year were down almost 20% at 19.9%, but man, only down 1% month over month. Whew, that's just, feels good to say that. Even if it's negative, it's still good to say only down 1%. So the South was also down just about that same amount, 1.1%, which put the index at 106.6. They're the only region, of course, the South is the only region that's still above that 100 threshold. The Midwest was number two at 91.2 after a 2.7% drop. Northeast fell just under 2%. They're at 79.3. And the West was actually positive. They saw a gain month over month, but was still in fourth place at 70. So they were positive month over month. That's great. But um, yeah, I mean, overall, there's still not a lot of pending home sales happening right now in the West. So the good news, like I said, the economists were expecting a 3.8% drop, which I thought was going to be five, six, 7%, and instead only down 1%. So that's the good news. Here is the bad news because there's a lot of bad news, unfortunately, in housing right now. Housing affordability remains at historic lows. So back around historic, well, everything's kind of historic in a way, but this is the lowest level it's been since 1989. That is housing affordability. Assuming a 30-year fixed rate mortgage, a 20% down payment, the monthly mortgage payment on a typical home jumped to $1,944. So almost at that $2,000 level, that is a 54% increase from one year ago. $679 if you're looking for the dollar amount. And well, we've known this. I mean, we've talked about home affordability. That is the one thing that is really stifling the housing market because you know people out there want to buy. We, I mean, you talk to anyone. They want to buy. And we talked about this earlier this week. You know, what is keeping people from making that move? Higher rates, higher prices, being able to afford a down payment. 
And so there is no doubt that affordability is probably the big topic in housing. I mean, it's just not even a question. Then it's being sort of magnified by rates increasing. And so it's home affordability is the biggest issue in housing right now. But we're not going to end on a bad note, at least with regards to this topic. So here is some more good news. I like to find the silver lining. And in this in this report actually wasn't that difficult. I mean, beating the street down less than expected. Here's some more good news. Lawrence Yun, who is the chief economist at the National Association of Realtors, believes we may be close to the bottom. So he's not saying we're there yet, but we may be close to it. Saying in a statement, in terms of the current housing cycle, we may be at or close to the bottom in contract signings. This month's very modest decline reflects the recent retreat in mortgage rates. Inventories are growing for homes in the upper price ranges, but limited supply at lower prices or lower price points is hindering transaction activity. And so we know it's going to happen, right? More inventory hits the market. That's going to slow prices. And next week, of course, we're getting Case Schiller. I keep seeing all these reports. Like I was looking at the Drudge Report yesterday, and there was a you know headline that home prices have fallen by the most since 2011. And these are all based on differing reports. You know, I think that one was looking at Black Knight. Um, you know, we've looked at the Census Bureau. We've looked at even the National Association of Realtors. But we all know that the gold standard when it comes to home prices is the Case Shiller Index. That's what most people look to. And we will get that report next week. And the slowing is still probably not going to be in the data because once again, it's a three month lag. And so they're still looking at what was happening at the beginning of the summer, but that's when things were starting to slow down. So if we see a major slowdown, then we know that, yeah, we're getting to that point where we might finally see a pullback in home prices. And I think it was uh, Fitch, you know, the ratings agency, I think they came out and said that they're expecting home prices to fall if we aren't in a recession, anywhere from zero to 5%. And if we are in a recession, five to 10% nationwide. And I think most people think we're probably going into a recession. So we could see, you know, anywhere from five to 10%. And of course, that's not that's nationally. So it depends on what markets you are. Obviously, some of the housing markets that have seen 30, or I should say, you know, 30, 40% year over year growth. Those are probably the areas we're going to see more of a pullback. And in other areas where you've seen sort of a less drastic year over year increase, you may not see as much, prices might not fall as much. But that is kind of one of the problems, unfortunately, with this national data. As we all know, real estate, it's all local. That's what it's all about. And so it's harder to get a feel. I mean, every talk to you know real estate agents, mortgage people in your market, and they'll have a much better indicator of what is happening. So it's nice to start the pod talking about some good news, <laughs> that we could be near the bottom, And a report was actually better than expected. I kind of want to stop there and just go, hey, you know, there's some good news for the day. Let's move on. But we do have to talk about mortgage demand. Of course, get that weekly from the Mortgage Bankers Association. And not surprisingly, second week in a row, mortgage demand was down only 1.2%. And that was thanks to a 1% decline in purchase demand, which is now down 21% year over year, which I still think is impressive. 
I mean, 20, I mean, we, we see what's happened with rates. Home prices are going up. Home affordability is the worst since 1989. And still, it's only down 21%. And I mean, I know 21% is a big number. I understand that. Talk to anyone in the mortgage industry, and they will tell you um, what's happening with regards to the slowdown. But still, you would think it would be worse with what's happened with home affordability. So people still want to buy. If they can buy, they are buying. And that's a good idea. I mean, if, if it makes sense economically, financially, I should say, to buy, you should be buying. We've talked about that, right? People trying to time the market. Don't do that. Don't try and time the market. That's not, it's, it's ill-advised. <laughs> okay, nobody can do it. People who do it for a living, like spend 20 hours studying charts and data, historical information, and they think they, and they, and they don't have it. So timing the market is impossible. And so people that want to buy are buying. Now, refi demand, of course, down again, 3% week over week, and now down 83% compared to the same time last year. And in case you're wondering, the refinance share of mortgage activity has fallen to 31.1%. And then here is a fascinating stat. ARM, adjustable rate mortgages. Remember, what was it? Back in spring? we saw this number jump. Actually, May 6th, we saw adjustable rate mortgage activity of you know all applications jump to 10.8%. And everyone outside of housing started freaking out. People, oh, here we go, it's happening again, 2008, all over again, it's gonna happen. Well, now <laughs> it's down to 6.5% of total applications. That is a 58% drop from its high on May 6th. So much for the great arm crisis of 2022. <laughs> Listen, you know, going back to timing the market, it's impossible to time the market, but if you're gonna make a decision about housing, you know, listening to this podcast, I think is a good idea, but just talking to people in the industry is the best idea. <laughs> and everyone, no one in housing was freaking out about the arm uh, levels increasing, mostly because ARM products are very different. We've talked about that ad nauseum here on the on the podcast, but that's why no one was freaking out. But also they knew that it was based off of opportunities at the time and it wasn't what happened in 2008 where people couldn't afford a fixed rate. And so they were going the ARM route. And when those loans reset, they were gonna be in trouble. That's not what's happening with ARM products right now. So it's it's no one was freaking out except people outside of housing and you've noticed all those people have now shut up. <laughs> it's, it's like the people that were worried about foreclosures, then they were worried about the increase in arms. Now they're worried about inventory and they're all wrong. They're all wrong. We talk about it here on the podcast. We look at the actual data. We look at the historical context and we look at pundits that actually know what they're talking about. Is this going to continue? Is this going to be a problem? And so if you hear me panicking on the podcast, then you can start panicking <laughs> because then you'll know that, okay, this data does not look good. But yeah, so much for the great arm crisis of 2022 and rates last week, in case you are interested, according to the Mortgage Bankers Association, this is for the week ending August the 19th, they actually saw rates jump up pretty dramatically. They had the 30-year fixed at 5.65%. Like I said, that's a 20 basis point jump week over week and is up 262 basis points from one year ago. And pretty much everything was up. The 15-year fixed 
was up 14 basis points to just over 5%, 5.01%. And the ARM was up 38 basis points. So huge jump for the 5.1 ARM, 4.81%. So rates up across the board, according to the Mortgage Bankers Association, which of course is going to put downward pressure on purchase demand and refi demand, duh. <laughs> and so, yeah, um, not the worst. And like I said, I'm still impressed that purchase demand's only down 21% with what's happening with housing affordability. And before we go, speaking of affordability, so I'm kind of torn on this issue because my conservative mind, <laughs> my limited government fiscal responsibility mind does not like this next story, but from a professional standpoint, as someone who works in the mortgage industry, I'm like, eh, that's not so bad. This might actually be pretty good. And what I'm talking about is the Biden administration announcing their plans for student loan. They're calling it relief. For some people, it'll be relief. For other people, it will be forgiveness. And so this has been hotly debated I'm sure all across talk radio, all across cable news, columns everywhere has been talking about it. We have not talked about it, but we finally got the date. I wanted to wait for the date. A lot of rumors. I want to wait for the data before we talk about it. So here is the plan. This is from the White House. The Department of Education will provide up to $20,000 in debt cancellation to Pell Grant recipients with loans held by the Department of Education and up to 10000 in debt cancellation to non-Pell Grant recipients. So a lot of people are going to be in that latter category. Now, who qualifies for this? Borrowers who are eligible are people who make less than $125,000 a year and couples, so families, that make less than 250000 would be eligible for this forgiveness. And to smooth the transition... The president will extend the pause on federal student loan repayment for one final time. I feel like we've heard that before. This is the last time we're going to do it through December 31st, 2022, which means borrowers should expect to resume payments on their student loans January 2023. The administration estimates this will provide relief for up to 43 million borrowers and will cancel the remaining balance for 20 million borrowers. So that is the facts of the situation. And here's sort of the reality, because there's a lot of debates about this. Will this really benefit anybody? Um, will this have sort of a, will this put more pressure on inflation? I mean, we've seen some good news from inflation data, and we're going to get some more news, of course, tomorrow. We're going to be getting the PCE index, which is the Fed's, preferred gauge with regards to inflation, which most are expecting to be muted, if not fall a little bit like we saw with CPI, which showed 0% growth year over year. So we're seeing some good news from the inflation front. We're, we're hearing about you know prices stabilizing with regards to automobiles used or new, we're seeing some, you know, gas prices are falling, some food prices are falling, so people are happy about that. But one of the big concerns and criticisms of this plan is will it be inflationary? And there was a report, a poll from CNBC that found 59% of Americans are concerned that student loan forgiveness will make 
inflation worse. And those people, well, they're not alone. I mean, there is some backing people in the industry. Art Laffer, of course, famed economists, the famous Laffer curve told Newsweek, quote, forgiving student loans will reduce the number of goods, which is inflationary. It will increase the size of the monetary base, which is also inflationary. The two together, I don't know how much it will contribute to inflation, but it's not a trivial amount. And I also heard Lawrence Summers who famously was out there touting, who you know, he was concerned about inflation six, seven months ago. He was one of the people who was the reason Joe Manchin decided not to get on board with the Biden administration's Build Back Better plan. But then Larry Summers said that the new plan, the Inflation Re- um, Reduction Act, would not be inflationary. And that's when Joe Manchin decided to get on board. So Larry Summers is kind of a big voice right now because the one person who's listening to him is Joe Manchin. That's the deciding vote. And he tweeted about this a couple days ago, essentially arguing that he believed it would be inflationary. And if you are going to do it, it needs to be targeted to middle class, which this technically is. I mean, we can have a debate about 250,000. I think anyone living in a major city, that would probably be closer to middle class everywhere else probably not (laughs) so we can't have a debate about that but he also said to make sure it's only a few thousand dollars now it's ten thousand dollars by any definition a few thousand probably not but it wasn't the full freight and that's what he was worried about so they kind of listened to larry summers on this and so larry summers would probably argue that it's not as bad as if they would have forgiven all student loans but because they are going up to 250,000 per household, which I would argue most households across the country, that is not middle class. And because it's more than a few thousand, as he said, it probably in his eyes will be somewhat inflationary. Now, how much it's, it's, it's hard to know. No one can really put that into a digestible number, but it should also be noted that Goldman Sachs, sort of commented on this, you know, they release their notes every day, kind of looking at what's happening with the economy and finance and everything else. Goldman Sachs thinks that in their analysis, we found that debt forgiveness of $10,000 per borrower would discharge around $300 billion or about 1.2% of GDP, which is, that's amazing that $300 billion is only 1.2% of GDP of debt, but would boost consumption by less than 0.1% of GDP over the year following implementation. So if anyone thinks it's going to be a stimulus to the economy, it's not. It's not really. That's what Goldman Sachs is saying. Now, to be fair, I'm not just going to give you one side of this and say, oh, look, it's wrong. I might not agree with it, like I said, from a, a, a sort of ideological standpoint, but I see the benefit from the mortgage industry because I'm looking at it and saying, well, you know, people have less debt, their debt payment drops their debt to income drops and maybe more people can afford a home and can borrow money to buy a home. <laughs> so from a professional standpoint, I'm like, yeah, sure. Why not? <laughs> I know those two parts of me are, are, are battling it out right now. I got an angel and a devil on, but you figure out which one's which <laughs> I'll let you figure out which one's, which one is, Oh my, did you see that? Oh no, my, my light just completely, there we go. I look at this. I'm fixing this on the air. There we go. See, look at that. Look at that. My light almost completely fell off the table. See, this is why if you watch 
the podcast on YouTube, you get to enjoy me just knocking the light off of my table, catching it, and then resituating it. So there you go. Look at that. That's one of the benefits to watching the podcast versus just listening to it. All right, hold we got it. we're almost out of time. I mean, I know technically we can go on forever. There's there's no time limit, but I do like to keep these somewhat spiffy, somewhat. Um, I do want to give the other side. So there there is support, obviously, from people in the Biden administration, but there is also support outside the administration. Now, a lot of it, I don't want to look to people who necessarily benefit, like people who are against student loans at all. I think they should all be you know forgiven. I'm not going to listen to them, just like I'm not going to listen to, you know, conservative, I'm not going to listen to Breitbart or National Review or someone who I know is going to be against student loans. That's why I looked at, you know, Larry Summers, who's been pretty even keel in all of this. And Goldman Sachs doesn't really take political sides. So I did find an opinion from the Roosevelt Institute. Uh, Mike Conxall and Ali Bustamante over at the Roosevelt Institute recently wrote that canceling debt alongside the restarting of payments on student loans, they believe would cancel it out. They say, quote, restarting payments would reduce inflation by 20 basis points a year, each year, versus a 15 basis point increase to canceling $10,000 in student debt. Thus, a deal that canceled student debt and restarted payments would reduce inflation versus the status quo. So they're arguing, kind of an interesting argument, is that because we're restarting payments, which will have a deflationary impact on spending because people will have less money. So everyone that has student debt for the last, you know, almost what two years, almost three years has not been making any payments, you know, at all. I mean, it's, it's over two years now, it'll be like two and a half years. They haven't making any student loan payments, but now they're gonna have to go back to making them so that however much money they had, whatever their payment is, who knows, a couple hundred dollars, thousand, who knows they're now gonna to have to start spending again. So that's money that they could, they, it was discretionary, now it's allocated to their payment. The people who will be getting the benefit of this, they will now definitely have that money and that burden will be removed. And so even though for them, they're gonna to continue to have more money, the people having to pay their loans, they're gonna pull it out of the economy, you know, which will be deflationary. And so they believe those two acts will cancel each other out. So that's the argument from the other side that it will not be deflationary. I will let you make the decision. Notice I didn't say. <laughs> I'm against it from a constitutional sort of fiscal perspective. I just don't want the government spending the money. And I also question how it's going to actually come about. Is it going to be a congressional vote? Because I don't know where the president's finding his power to allocate this money. That's the, the Congress controls the purse purse strings. That's very clear in the constitution. So my argument, constitutional, fiscal, I'm not going to touch the inflation debate. All right. I'll let you decide. That's why I gave you the, the two sides there. Try, I'm trying to, I'm trying to do the best I can as a former conservative talk show host. It's, I have the, my inside wants me to give you my opinion on what I think, but I'll let you decide. I will let you decide based on this information. Of course, all these articles you can get in the companion newsletter which I send out every morning along with this podcast, marketsandmortgages.com. And the articles are up there too. You can go there and check it out. All right, we gotta go. You guys have a great Thursday. The good news, once again, pending home sales falling less than expected. How awesome is that? I will talk to you on Friday. 
for another edition of Markets and Mortgages. And remember, as always, do not wait to buy real estate. You buy real estate, then wait. Wait.